I was just doing some walking meditation uh, before coming in here. I like to uh, come a little early when I'm giving a talk and do some walking beforehand if I have the time. And I just was struck by the, the beauty of the evening. The little black flies are a little bit annoying maybe, but they're not biting yet. And, very beautiful evening tonight, and I just felt so fortunate, lucky to be able to spend time in a place like this and to have come into contact with and heard and been able to bring these practices into my life. And I thought really all of us have incredibly good fortune that this is part of our lives. Sometimes I think we can take that for granted, you know, but there's some actually the fruits of some very wholesome past karma. Those fruits coming to bear in, at this time that we would have this opportunity. It's rare in the world that beings are able to hear the teachings or any kind of teachings, not just these, have the interest and then have the ability to actually uh, practice. There's a lot of people I have met in my travels in Asia, especially who would who would love to be able to come and spend some time quietly on retreat, but their lives are not such that they are able to do that. I think sometimes we can uh, yeah, take this somewhat for granted. This week we've been really cultivating uh, this quality of mindfulness, mindful presence, mindful awareness. And the beauty of this uh, mental factor of mindfulness is is in its uh, simplicity and accessibility, I think. It's, it's incredibly powerful it opens the door to the entire practice, but it's, it's available in any moment. We don't need special circumstances or some kind of deep uh, absorption or, or, or anything in order to be mindful. In any moment, we can come to simple presence. And even better than that is that anything that is arising in our experience, in our life, in the flow of our life. Anything that we wake up to, you could say, anything that we bring mindfulness to can serve as a vehicle for the arising of insight. So it really doesn't matter what's happening in our life. It doesn't matter what we're mindful of, ultimately. Of course, we have our preferences, don't we? We want to be mindful of those sweet, blissful, pleasant experiences. (laughs) Maybe less interested in the ones that are not so much fun. But this is actually very good news for us as meditators, as uh, practitioners. And it points to something that's really very important is is that we can bring this quality of mindfulness, of 
simple presence of mind to any aspect of our life at any moment, no matter what we're doing. So we don't have to reserve it for times when we get to come on retreat or for times when we're sitting in formal meditation. We don't have to uh, hold it only for those times. And if we look at the totality of our life, say over the course of a year, most of the time we're not on retreat or sitting in meditation, isn't it? Maybe that's, maybe some of you are spending most of your time meditating. But for most of us, that's not the, not the case. We're not on retreat full time. We're not always sitting in formal meditation practice. But often we can hear ourselves speaking. I hear this a lot, spending time in places like this. People say, in my life, in my practice, or out in the real world, or, or things like this, this um, these reflections of this attitude as though life and practice are somehow separated, somehow not, not part of the same thing. And if we hold them in this way, then we're placing the majority of our time, of our life outside the realm of practice. And we fragment things in a way, we compartmentalize our life in a way that isn't actually useful. You know, and no matter whether we're on retreat or engaged in the activities that make up our daily lives and our home life, our work, our relationships, and all the rest of it, it's still, it's just our life. It's still this flow of a life no matter what we're doing. And, we're, and then we're either, we either show up for that or we don't. We're either here for it or we're not. But we can find that we create this, this way of looking at life, this situation where the only time and place where we, where we think of, of practice, of bringing mindfulness to our life is when we're on retreat or when we're sitting in meditation, but you know, it's it's just our life. Life is practice. Practice is life, and no matter whether we're here for it or not, it's going to pass by all too quickly. You know, some days, the I, I think, well, I'm. I'm I'm almost 58, I'm 57 years old, I'll be 58 in June. Sometimes it just strikes me as such an odd thing. Remarkable, you know, how did it happen? I was minding my own business. (laughs) And I've suddenly become quite middle-aged, actually been middle-aged for a while, if you think of it as sort of halfway through a life, supposing it might actually turn out to be a long one. Perhaps it will be. My parents both lived to be almost 92. But we don't know. But I'm thoroughly middle-aged. I don't feel particularly middle-aged most of the time. Most often when I wake up and get up in the morning, that's my most middle-aged feeling (laughs) time of day. (laughs) Generally. 
but I can't deny the truth of it. And sometimes it seems like, well, just it's just last year that I sat my first retreat here in this hall. Something like that. And so no matter how we feel about what's going on, these lives pass by so quickly. And, you know, it's worth looking at what are we doing with our time? How are we spending our days? What do we hold as being important in that? What do we tend to dismiss as, as being unimportant or not worth our time or not worth being there for? How much of the time are we really here? So I think it's really important to look and see if we've somehow created some sort of split where life and practice are, are set, a, set apart. There's a really useful and I think quite powerful and, and always useful way to look at the practice. And you know, this path is described in many ways. I spoke about this the other night. We can see it in a lot of different ways. But there's one way of holding it that I think is always useful. And that's in terms of the perfecting, cultivation, perfection, ripening of what are called the paramis in Pali. It's paramita in Sanskrit. And these are a 10 noble or beautiful, wholesome, helpful, qualities of mind and heart that it's said that the Buddha developed these over, perfected these over countless lifetimes and kind of the mythological story of the life of the Buddha. It's that spend entire lifetime developing one or another of these beautiful qualities. And there are stories in, in the collection called the Jataka tales or kind of teaching fables. Often in those stories, the Buddha, the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisatta, is born uh, often as a, an animal or a prince or a, all kinds of different lives, developing these you know, ten paramis. One place in the suttas, uh, the, uh, the Buddha's chief disciple, Sariputta has asked him a question, how many qualities are there, Lord, issuing in Buddhahood? And the Buddha replied, there are, Sariputta, ten qualities issuing in Buddhahood. What are the ten? Giving, Sariputta, is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. These are qualities that issue in Buddhahood. So these are these, this is the 10 paramis. And so we could say then that the the culmination of the path, one way we might uh, think of that or relate to that in the awakened heart mind, then these qualities are uh, fully developed. They're brought to a, a kind of completion or perfection. And you could say then, if the mind and the heart are no longer under the sway of the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, these root sources of suffering, then these qualities of the paramis are there. This is our natural response to life when we're no longer relating from a place of habitual reactivity. 
And I think reflecting on the spiritual life in terms of these, one of the reasons I feel like it is so useful is because it has the uh, ability to greatly expand the scope of what we hold as practice. And it helps us to cut through the habitual tendency to be constantly judging, assessing, and evaluating our practice and our experience in, in meditation, for example. You know, we so often we're looking for some evidence of progress. You know, mentally comparing ourselves to our projections about other yogis on retreat, for example. You know, and looking to see if it's working or am I getting it? Everyone else seems to be getting it, whatever it is. We're doing it right. And then we, we judge our experience and then we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. And so often then we wind up overlooking these some very beautiful qualities that are being developed just through our willingness to show up and, and begin again as often as we do that. You know, and sometimes we hear a list like this list of the paramis and, and we find it kind of difficult to relate to the cultivating or perfecting these and it just sounds like a checklist of qualities that we don't have. And clearly we don't have these and we feel disheartened as though we'll always be lacking or deficient as though somehow we were born with a certain amount of whatever and that's just the way it is. But of course, this isn't true and our minds and hearts are, are malleable and we can learn. Nothing is fixed and where we place the power of our attention and intention really does matter and the whole path is predicated on the idea that uh, we can change and grow, that the mind-heart can be transformed through this practice. We can grow and, and we, we see the power of this truth for ourselves at times. We're able to touch this. And so throughout our lives, in our practice, in our daily lives, as we go through a lifetime, we are developing, cultivating these qualities, strengthening them through our willingness to show up again and again, bringing the intention to cultivate love, wisdom, understanding, whatever words you might use. Qualities like patience and perseverance, resolve, determination, renunciation. These are being cultivated through this willingness to keep at it. But we can overlook this uh, part of the practice because we get so focused on trying to meditate and trying to do it right and get concentrated or or whatever to do the practice. And what if our whole retreat is just about developing patience? What if our whole life is about perfecting, cultivating, developing patience or perseverance? How, how would we feel about that? Are we okay with that? It's also useful, I think, and maybe 
the main thrust of this talk is looking at ways to strengthen our sense of presence in our lives outside of retreat. You know, here it's pretty easy. We set it up so nothing else you really got to do except pay attention. <laughs> Not a whole lot. Yeah, you, we can always find ways to entertain ourselves. Someone in the group was saying, well, I, there's no TV for me to watch, but we can watch TV <laughs> in our minds, right? We do it anyway. We don't need that thing. We don't need the monitor to go away. But we can look at different ways to, to um, encourage a sense of presence in daily life. So I'll speak a little bit about some of these. And tomorrow we'll have a chance to uh, maybe speak some more. I'm not going to get to all of the suggestions or ideas. And you may have questions or things that will bring out more possibilities. So I'll just mention a few things. But here a lot of us have been using uh, the breath as a kind of anchor or maybe the sense, the sense of the body sitting, a connection to, to just the fact that there is a body, feeling of the bodily life as a way to anchor the attention. And we can bring uh, mindfulness of breathing, for example, into our daily lives in a lot of ways. And it's a great object, you know, Part of the reason I think that it's such a classic uh, object for attention, for mindfulness, the breath, is because it's so, um, you know, it's always there. If we're alive, we're doing it. It's doing itself. It's happening. So it's, it's, um, it's very mundane and ordinary in one way. Right? It's just going on. And yet it's so special because if it stops, we're not going to last very long. You know, it's this vital, essential aspect of our life. We hardly notice most of the time. It's very portable. We can bring it with us. (laughs) We will bring it with us (laughs) whether we want to or not, right? It's available in any moment. We can always come back to it. And so it's not that we, we hold the attention on the breath. You know, when we're in, engaged in activities, we can't focus just exclusively on the breath. We have to pay attention to what else we're doing. But a lot of the time it can be there as kind of a background, a backdrop, a connection with the breath or, or with the body, a connection of, with the body in some simple light way as a backdrop or a background to a lot of activities that we might do, gently holding it in a way that actually helps us to stay more present with what we're doing. We can bring attention to a lot of our daily activities. You know, here we, we, we have a chance to cultivate a kind of seamless flow of mindfulness through activities. We don't have too much to do and we can be mindful in the in-between times. It's really important. When I'm on a tree, on retreat, I look, I pay more attention to the in-betweening, the in-betweenings, I call them, transitions, and uh, more the daily activities, times in my room or doing my job. And one of my teachers in uh, Burma, I would go to report, we would report on our, you know, every day sometimes on our practice, and 
I'd be all ready to report. We use the movement of the breath at the abdomen a lot as an anchor. I'd go in all ready to report on that. And he said, he'd say, well, what about when you were brushing your teeth? Or how about when you were washing out your robes? I was living as a monk at that time. What were you aware of then? Sitting on the toilet or whatever. He was much more wanted to know, was there mindfulness at those times? So there's a lot of ways that here we can bring mindfulness to these activities and outside of retreat, not in this, with the same kind of precision as we would here. And we have to let go of that, but we can be aware of, of bodily movements, reaching and touching, for example. If we just tell ourselves, oh, let me, let me pay attention to reaching as I go through the day. Boy, it seems like that's all we do cups and bowls and spoons and shoes and doorknobs and everything, car keys, on and on. And so the, the point of my suggesting this is not like some kind of hypervigilance through the day that we don't want to add strain or stress to our lives, but this simple attention to what we're doing and we can connect to that through, through the body, through this simple connection to the physicality of of things that we do, just bringing more attention to the moment, to what we're doing, more, uh, more of ourselves to our lives. And I think a great help with this is, um, I think generally useful in our lives is to, um, is to keep things simple in, in doing, maybe trying to do just one thing at a time. You know, we've become this multitasking culture as if somehow that was a good idea. And somehow we're getting more done by having a whole bunch of things going on at once, as though it reflects greater efficiency or productivity. I really question that. You know, I I feel like sometimes I think we've become an, an attention deficit disorder culture because we don't stay with anything for very long, do we? And then it's off to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But a great aid to mindfulness, whether we're on retreat or in our lives outside of retreat, is to, is to really see if we can maybe just do one thing at a time. Keep things simple. It's not only helpful for mindfulness, but it brings more stability, more sense of kind of collectedness or concentration to um, our lives. And we might find we actually get more done, or if nothing else, we might enjoy it more, might be happier in the doing of it. You know, if we really show up for what we're doing, show up for our lives, even kind of mundane, what we might say are boring activities or tasks can be very interesting if we're actually there for them. And we, we get a sense for this on retreat when we're really connected, say, to the experience of the, of the breath, which is not an inherently intrinsically interesting thing or, or connecting with just the sense of the body sitting. You know, if you go out and talking to your friends and say, oh, body sitting was just so interesting. They're, they're not going to really get that, probably. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
or, you know, I was reaching for the oatmeal. <laughs> wow, that just sounds so fascinating. It's not likely to be their response to, to that. And yet, if we're really there for it, it actually is very, uh, it's totally fulfilling. It's, it's interesting. It's, that interest doesn't lie in the task. It lies in our relationship to it, in our, uh, whether we're there or not. And so a lot of things can have that quality of, of being interesting, even very enjoyable, that we often write off. You know, say doing the dishes, for example. You know, we can often, oh, I've got to get through it so I can go do whatever, you know. As though it's, you know, if we're doing that, thinking about everything else that we'd rather be doing, <laughs> we miss out on that experience we miss out on the present moment and we can dismiss whole chunks of our life in this way. One of our colleagues and a teacher of mine, colleague, when she first came to meditation practice, she was a single mother raising three or four pretty young kids. And um, so she didn't get to come on a retreat like this. And any time she had the chance to sit in meditation, she just fell asleep because she was exhausted, as you might imagine you would be. And uh, so her practice for years was mindfulness of daily activities, washing out diapers, cleaning the house, feeding the kids, all of that. Her teacher, she had a teacher who actually spent time in her home and kind of followed her around and saw what she did and say, okay, pay attention doing this, pay attention doing this. And that was her whole practice. She didn't get to do what we're doing. And her practice really opened and flowered just through that. I haven't mentioned uh, the anything about having a a daily formal meditation practice. But that's another very um, important, really, I think, essential consideration for us if we have this ability to do that. We need to be careful not to, you know, we can get kind of enthusiastic on retreat and decide I'm going to sit for two hours, a morning hour, an afternoon hour, when I go home, you know, and then we find out that it's, that's not going to happen and we can sort of, we can set it too high, the bar too high, and then we don't, maybe don't do it at all. It's better to surprise ourselves with how good we are than disappoint ourselves with how bad we are. Or maybe we say, I'm going to just try to at least sit in the meditative posture. I'm going to assume the posture once a day. <laughs> And then maybe we'll stay there for a while. Maybe it'll grow from that. His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said this, during formal meditation, in a sense you are recharging your batteries so that when you come out of the session, you are better equipped to deal with the demands of your everyday life. The very purpose of recharged batteries is to enable them to run something, isn't it? Similarly, you recharge yourself through whatever practices you engage in, because as a human being, you can't avoid the daily routines of a life. 
It is during these periods that you should be able to live according to the principles of your Dharma practice. I like this idea of, uh, it's a kind of recharging of our batteries, these times of formal practice. And so it's great if we can build that into our lives. And, And a great aid to that is maybe having a place, even if it's just the corner of a room, that's kind of set aside for that. And maybe putting something there that helps us to remind us. You know, we maybe some kind of simple version of a shrine or, a, you know, something like this Buddha on, a, on the stand behind me, or maybe just a place where there's a flower that we might put or some uh, image that inspires us. Something where it helps to remind us, oh, okay, this is something that's important to me. Checking um, our priorities as an aspect of that. You know, the pull of the world is so strong. All of the things that we can do that are calling us. And it's so easy to let this, um, even if we feel the importance, we can let it slip away so easily. We all know that. So really checking in with our priorities, what we feel is worth doing. Hmm. See how far I get with this. I've heard that there's a traditional way that uh, beginning a Dharma talk in uh, some of the Buddhist countries, I think uh, in Thailand from the Thai forest tradition, maybe it's monks or nuns especially who begin a talk this way. But I've always wanted to do it. So I'm not beginning it, but I'm going to start a new talk now. (laughs) And uh, this is the uh, traditional way of beginning. Greetings, sisters and brothers in aging, sickness, and death. (laughs) How's that for a cheery opening line? (laughs) In one uh, discourse, the Buddha uh, spoke of five uh, reflections or contemplations that he said one should reflect on frequently whether a nun or a monk or lay woman or lay man. said one should frequently bring these to mind, these contemplations to mind. I'll read this five. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. And I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. This last one, reflection on uh, the law of karma or kamma, that our actions uh, bear fruit according to their according to their nature. Now, this might not sound in the same way as my in my opening line didn't sound so cheery. This might not sound like a really cheery list. Oh, great! Aging, sickness, death, parted from what I love, owner of my actions. Yes, 
<laughs> that may not be our initial response when we hear it, especially if it's the first time. You know, we, we know we're going to age, that there may likely be sickness in our lives at some point. And we all know that we're going to eventually die. We know you can't take it with you, this parted from things that we are dear to us. But we may think, well, why would we want to dwell on dreary thoughts like this, these dreary subjects? You know, shouldn't we focus on enjoying life while we can? Buddhism seems like this really downer tradition. You know, first, life is suffering. Now we have to contemplate these dreary subjects. And what's up with that? You know, and these, these reflections, of course, they, they go directly to the truth of impermanence, which lies at the very core of what the Buddha was teaching. And we, we don't mind investigating impermanence out in the world. We like it out in nature. We, you know, the, the trees and their life cycle, and we find that it's beautiful. Trees aging, the dying trees, the new ones coming up out of that. We like to investigate it out there, but these hit kind of close to home. And we think, we might think, well, you know, life is hard enough without dwelling on morbid thoughts. And if we're young, we would think, might think this kind of reflection will rob us of some vitality or sense of wonder, you know, our whole life, all its possibilities. And, and we fear that it will steal this from us. But the point of these contemplations isn't to make us feel bad or, or somehow, um, you know, create in us some sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. That's not the point, of course. You know, we can fear that actually bringing these reflections to mind could be depressing to us or, uh, you know, a bummer in some way, but we actually often find that the opposite is true. When we, if we actually do engage with these, really bring them to mind. You know, if we're living with an unacknowledged fear of aging, infirmity, and death, then by actually coming to face these fears carefully, with kindness, we start to undo our conditioning around them. We can see that that these fears are impermanent and empty of any solid core. We bring them to the surface of our awareness and we actually start to see that they, they let go on their own. They start to let go and they no longer weigh so heavily. And we can feel lighter and more easeful as a result. And Thai forest master Ajahn Lee Damodaro once said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. And that's a really different attitude than we might notice coming up for us to see these as noble treasures. But part of the power of these reflections is is that they allow us to take a stand on reality, on the truth of things and the way it really is. They can awaken in us a sense of the preciousness, the fragility and preciousness of a life. And they connect us with a spirit of what is called samvega in the Pali language, 
this word usually translated as spiritual urgency. As I've gotten older in my middle-aged-dom, the passage of time just seems to have sped up. And so I'm sure some of you have noticed when I was a kid, summer vacation seemed to last forever. And now years go by, just another one is gone. It's 2013. I never thought that would come around. <laughs> That's mind boggling to me. The years go so quickly. And of course the perception of time is not fixed. And you may have noticed that a single period of meditation can last an eternity. <laughs> Ring the bell. <laughs> Ring the bell. <laughs> but then where did these last four days go? They're just gone. There's a, a place in, the, in one of the collections of suttas where the Buddha... Uh, very rarely he quotes another teacher. In this case, it's a teacher named Araka who said this. This is a brief excerpt of, of this uh, teaching from uh, this uh, person named Araka who was around at that time. He said, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life for none who is born can escape death. And then he went on with this list of uh, really beautiful images. He said, just as a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long. Even so, a human life is like a dewdrop. It will not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops, a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and will not last long. And just as a line drawn on water with a stick will vanish, and not last long. Even so, a human life is like this. It will not last long. And so this is one way we can connect with this quality of samvega, this uh, spiritual urgency, through touching our own mortality directly, connecting to the truth of life's brevity and fragility, but not in some morbid kind of way, but we touch the beauty and the preciousness of that, of our lives. And we, we want to ask the question, what's worth doing then? We want to make the best use of our time. And all of us here, I think, have some connection to this, or we wouldn't come and spend Someday we wouldn't spend time on retreat like this. You know, it's, it's not something that a lot of people would choose to do. We might not describe it as the spiritual urgency, but there's some feeling, oh, I want to look more deeply at what I'm doing with my life, how I'm spending my time. There's a practice uh, that's done uh, based on a book, I think, but it's called... Well, I don't know what it's called, but it's the idea of, of living as though one had one year to live. What would we do differently? Sometimes I'll ask myself that question, and I wouldn't change very much. And other times I really have to look at what I'm doing, how I'm spending my time. 
So we might bring one or more of these contemplations to mind. Many people uh, reflect on them daily. Maybe put them up somewhere. So take the reflection on aging, for example. I'm subject to aging. I've not gone beyond aging. And of course we know this intellectually, but are we really willing to sit with that, the truth of that? You know, this, as all of these, all these reflections connects us with the truth of impermanence. And as I was saying, we might like to contemplate impermanence out there. We don't like to see it here, you know. We don't like to see these bodies aging, changing. You know, see gray hair in the mirror. Don't like that. In my case, my almost daily expanding of my forehead. You know, my hair's getting thin in back. And we, 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 get, we go into denial. I mean, for so long I would see this thinning and it's, oh, it's just a cowlick. <laughs> it's always been that way. It's like Rebecca's asking her eye doctor if she could be in denial about needing glasses for another year or two. <laughs> you know, we, don't, we want to exempt ourselves from it. I went to visit one of my friends who was a former business partner of mine who has a couple of years ago has young kids and I went up and knocked on the door <laughs> and one of the kids kind of pulled the curtain aside and said, hey mom, there's an old man at the door. <laughs> and I did not like it. <laughs> it's like, an old man? <laughs> Wait a minute, that is not okay with me. <laughs> you know, we... Recently, you know, I go to the store now and people are offering to help me out with my groceries. And, uh, no, thank you. I can manage quite fine. You know, so then our self-image starts to really suffer. We notice these things. And, you know, and I, I try to exercise and take care of myself, ride my bike, watch my diet, more or less. So I've decided I'm okay with being a middle-aged man, but I, I want to be a youthful middle-aged man. <laughs> There's that qualifier on there. But these self-images are problematic, aren't they? Because they they take quite a bit of maintenance. You know, we use them to feel good or secure about about ourselves. But uh, we can spend a lot of time and money kind of keeping them shored up and all the various things we might do. And it doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. And it's, it's good to look our best, of course. But... But, you know, we, get, we can really put a lot of energy into these. And then something happens and, and our self-image is, is shaken, you know. We suddenly realize it's out of date. Someone calls us sir or ma'am at some point or offers us a seat on the bus. <laughs> That's happened too. <laughs> That's, I'm supposed to be offering, you know, not being, having someone offer it to me. So usually our strategy is to adjust our self-image, like me deciding I'm okay with being middle-aged. But that's not the point, is to get good at adjust, adjusting our self-image. You know, our, our practice here is about going beyond all of images that we might hold. And so maybe we can come to terms with the aging of the body, this inevitable change. But what about our minds aging? They age too, don't they? You know, we 
we can come to terms with the body and we see how our practice will um, be there as a support, as a, uh, a strength, as a, a protection for us as we go through the changes of life, if we can stay alert. But what if our mind starts not to function so well? You know, what if our mental capacities start to diminish, slip away in some way? You know, I told you my age, I'm be 58 in a month and a half or so, but you know, if I don't write things down, memory is not what it was. If I don't write them down, I'm not going to stick around. <laughs> so I'm noticing some changes in that. Here's a poem for you, another Billy Collins. Uh, he's a great poet. This is called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion. The entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, (laughs) never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle. The capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. Not even lurking in some obscure (laughs) corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. (laughs) Well on your way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim or how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. You know, there's so much fear in our culture about the loss of our mental capacities. I think we fear this much more than the, the, than the body aging. My mother, in her uh, later years before her death and the few years before her death, she uh, had some uh, real strong symptoms of a kind of dementia. And uh, there was a lot of confusion. And her short-term memory was gone. (laughs) We'd have the same conversation over and over and over. And you know, I take after my mother in a lot of ways. I don't, these things, maybe they're hereditary. This could be in store for me. There's so much fear about this. There was a famous monk who uh, was a Cambodian monk. And he lived uh, the last years of his life not far from here in a small monastery. And I used to have a chance to go see him once in a while. And uh, I would just, I just loved to go and pay respects. He, he didn't know me. We weren't friends, but he was someone who was a very inspiring figure for me named Mahagosananda. 
he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize five times and was very, um, he should have won it five times, in my opinion. He was very active in um, raising awareness around landmine, landmines, banning landmines. A lot of these were left in his home country of Cambodia after the Vietnam War and so much, um, so many terrible injuries from these things. There's a beautiful photograph I've seen. I think it's, they have it at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, Center in California. It shows His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda bowing to one another. And they're both bent over almost double. Each one is trying to get lower <laughs> to show the greater respect. And in his later years, he, he had, uh, I think it was Alzheimer's disease, but he had uh, this uh, a lot of diminishment of his mental capacities. And I used to go see him at this time in his life. And I remember one, one of the last times I saw him, I, I went there and they said, well, um, he's, uh, Ajahn is in his room and you can go see him there. And he, I went into his room to pay respects and he just had, he, his face lit up. He didn't know who I wasn't because it was me. <laughs> just a sentient being who happened to show up. And he started handing me bars of soap and, and uh, things off of his shelves. And um, just with this radiant presence. And the whole room seemed to fill with light. And this very childlike quality there, but it just was like being bathed in love and light to be in his presence. So there's more there than, than this uh, diminishment of his capacities, clearly. I once read a story about a, a famous Indian teacher named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, a very famous, beloved teacher in India. And he lived and taught in uh, Mumbai in Bombay until uh, he was quite old. When he was in his 80s, at one point, someone said, well, what's it like to be an old yogi? And he said, oh, I just watch senility come in. I see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he, apparently he just roared with laughter after saying this. And I think maybe he was, sometimes I think this points to, he was pointing to something larger than our thinking mind and the cognitive processes. Something that uh, has the capacity to observe the whole thing, even as it, starts to, certain aspects of that start to decline. You know, and we may have had some indication of this possibility in, just in our practice here over these days together. You know, we see the arising and passing of thoughts. What is it that is aware of that? What is it that can be aware of the arising and passing of consciousness itself? Some aspect of Awareness that can see these things, that can know these things beyond the thinking mind. And we connect more and more directly with this kind of awareness as our practice unfolds more and more intimately, this quality of awareness that's not affecting. And so, as I was saying the other night in this description, the Buddha had of the luminous mind, likening it to uh, the sky or open space where clouds can come and go, but that awareness, the sky is not changed by that. And maybe there's a kind of awareness, aging, sickness, and death can arise 
and it's not affected by that. Reminds me of a, another story of, uh, I think it was the 16th Karmapa, who was again a very, very beloved teacher, he traveled the world teaching, and uh, he died in a hospital near Chicago in this country, uh, sick with cancer, he died. Body, body was riddled with cancer, and he was uh, near the end of his life in this hospital. And it, uh, the story is that all doctors and nurses, everybody just loved to go and hang out with him, just drawn to him, even though they didn't really know what he was about. Just his presence had that quality. And at some point, you know, he was really approaching the end of his life, and a lot of his students and followers were there, and they were very upset. And he, at one point, he said, don't worry, nothing happens. Maybe he was pointing to something in this same realm. I'll end tonight with a, a quotation from uh, another Thai forest monk. This was Ajahn Fuang Jotiko. It's from a, a small book called Awareness Itself. He said, you just have to keep being observant of the mind of awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of all of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you focus your investigation on in. Just keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, this basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. So we'll have just a short little bit of silence let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.